0: Welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. And this broadcast will be featuring Al Quattrochi, and uh, we'll be answering your questions on California Corbina on the fly. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Al a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com. Use that Q&A text box to send us your question, and we'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill out the form on the right side of our homepage, and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share the podcast. And when you do, use hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing and hashtag FlyFishing. In fact, if you have a moment, do it right now and let other people know about the great show that's going on here tonight. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted. as the property of Knowledge Group, Inc., doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Al Quatrochi about California Corbina on the fly. Whether you want to catch your first permit in Belize, tame a giant tarpon in the Florida Keys, or wrestle a mint bright Atlantic salmon in eastern Canada, Gill's Fly Fishing International's well-traveled booking team has the knowledge to make it happen. They consider trust to be the single most important aspect of their work. They only book locations that they know, meaning proven operations providing the right mix of great fishing, comfortable accommodation, and high integrity. Get in touch today to start planning your next fly fishing adventure. Visit flyfishinginternational.com or call them at 780-665-4943. Again, that's flyfishinginternational.com, or call them at 780-665-4943. Before we introduce Al, I'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. On our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Flyfishers International and a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawings, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Al's section that says Register for Our Drawing." Click on that link, fill out the form, and we'll announce the winner at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of Al's book, The Corbina Diaries. So this is a book that Al self-published, and it's a beautiful piece. Al being an artist and a designer made it look just wonderful. Here's how you can win Al's book, The Corbina Diaries. You have to be the first person to answer the question I ask at the end of the show. and The question would be about something that Al and I talk about during the show, and you submit your name uh, along with your location and your answer in the text box on our home page. The same text box you can use to ask questions during the show. So listen closely, take a lot of good notes, type fast, and hopefully you'll win the Corbina Diaries by Al Quattrochi. And also, in case you don't win, there's a link on our home page on the right side to Al's site where you can purchase the book there as well. Our guest tonight is Al Quattrochi. Al has been a saltwater fly angler, fly cire, and fly fishing advocate for over 35 years. He's been a cheerleader for education and the environment by creating fly fishing events along the west coast of California with the hope of introducing new anglers to this great passion he has for saltwater fly fishing. His personal mentors include Lefty Cray, Neil Taylor, Nick Kershione, and Bob Popovich. Al is a two-time IGFA world record holder. Both his saltwater records were accomplished in a single day with a 12-pound tippet record for calico bass and 20-pound tippet record for white sea bass. His articles, illustrations, photography, and fly patterns have been published in many prominent fly fishing magazines across the country. Al is a licensed and bonded fly fishing guide that prefers teaching, casting, and fishing techniques to anglers around the world. Al founded the popular One Surf. Fly in Southern California, which lasted nine seasons and raised thousands of dollars for nonprofits, supporting local fly shops up and down the West Coast. Alan and Master FFF MCI instructor Jim Solomon teach fly casting techniques to many anglers around the world through a program entitled The Fly Zone. Al has taught countless anglers how to cast a fly, including his longtime friend Jimmy Kimmel. Al is currently the West Coast Regional Editor of TAIL Magazine. TAIL is bi bimonthly publication and the premier saltwater fly fishing magazine in the country. Although Al has fished in many places around the globe, his passion is still sight fishing his local Southern California beaches in search of tailing Corbina. He has recently self-published his first fly fishing book entitled The Corbina Diaries, which is published by Love to Fly Fish Media. Al, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio.
1: Hey, Roger. It's great to be here, man. This is one of the coolest podcasts out there, and I'm so happy that I'm going to be part of it.
0: Yeah, well, you are part of it right now. (laughs) So here we go. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, we've got lots of good questions for you, and I know you like talking about Corbina, so it's going to be a fun night, I think, because I'm anxious to learn all about Corbina, something that I've just added to my bucket list after I've read your book, and I'm all set and ready to go. But first... I want to know what, because in the time that I've talked to you, I have a feeling that you're a very passionate person, and I want to know what does fly fishing mean to you?
1: Uh, That's a good question. Okay, fly fishing for me has always been the top of the pyramid. I've always fished my entire life, and I was mostly a spin fisherman as a young kid. Learning fly fishing and seeing people do things with the fly rod in salt water has always intrigued me. And for me, I think the most important thing about fly fishing is it's great to catch fish. We all love to catch fish. But fly fishing takes me to really pretty places. And it takes me to places where I can really just, it's almost like a zen thing to me. You know, the casting, the getting in tune with the whole environment, really trying to figure out and how to break a code on a fish. And that to me is the most exciting part of fly fishing. It's really being part of the environment and just really listening to nature and having the right tool. You're stripping the line with your hand. You feel the tug. You feel the fish take the fly. It's a wonderful experience, unlike anything else. And it's probably my favorite way to fish, although I do fish spinning rods. I do fish conventional rods. I fish all different ways. I'm not a – Fly fishing snob, but I think it, to me it's the most enjoyable way to catch a fish.
0: Yeah, likewise, and yeah, that tug is <laughs> something you can't forget. And in fact, just well, it's been a few years now. But I just remember the look on my grandson's face when he caught his first trout, and then you never forget that tug. You know, <laughs> it's always, you're always there waiting for that tug once you get it. Yeah, yeah. Now, when did you start fly fishing in the salt? And I guess you started in the salt fly fishing, I take it, or did I have Well, out? no,
1: I did start in freshwater, actually. Oh, okay. I, I, um, I always, living in the East Coast, you know, I always fished spinning rods and plugs, and I targeted stripers and bluefish and all that stuff off the beaches and the bridges and all that stuff. But I always read articles, and I always read stuff about Lefty and all the – Joe Brooks and all the different guys that were doing it. And – I never really had any mentors on the East Coast when I was a young kid. And then I ended up coming to California in the late 70s. And it was interesting. I used to read articles about this guy, Nick Curcione who I used to read the Saltwater Sportsman back then. And there was this guy, Nick Curcione in California, catching all these bonita on flies and stuff in the surf. And it was just kind of a fun thing. I used to always look for his writing. And then I pick up – my family picks up and moves to California when I'm in high school. I stayed back. I finished high school came out to California, went to school. I ended up going to Loyola Marymount. And it turns out that Nick Curcion was teaching. He was a professor at Loyola Marymount. That was totally serendipity. Mm, I got to meet him at at an alumni barbecue, and we just kind of hit it off. And he literally was my first mentor in salt water. But prior to that, I tried to get a fly rod in my hand. And what I did was I took a class by a guy named Neil Taylor. He was a wonderful man. He passed on, but he was a great – he reminded me a lot of Lefty in the sense that he was a wonderful caster. He was a tournament caster. He would, he would tournament cast plugs, bass, the bass game, and he would also tournament cast fly. And he was a sharpshooter, just like Lefty, very, very similar. And Dale mm-hmm. um, had a class at UCLA called the Art and Science of Fly Fishing. So as a young guy, I said, you know what, i got to learn this. So I took his class. I went to UCLA. It was an extension. And he taught entomology, taught about all the different lines, all the different stuff. And then at the end of our class, we all got into cars. We drove up to the Sierras, and we fished a couple of days together, and we caught trout. And that was really exciting. But I told Neil, I said, Neil, as much as I love this class and I want to learn about all these things and the trout and everything, i got to get a flyer out of my hand because I'm going to run to the beach after your class. I want to stop fishing (laughs) the beach. And uh, he laughed at me. He goes, Al, are you kidding me? I said, no, I'm serious. So that's how I got started. I did start out learning about you know doing it with trout and learning from Neil and learning how to cast and all that stuff. But then later on when I met Lefty, that took me to another stratosphere and he showed me how to double haul and and it was game on after that. But that's kind of how I started. Yeah. And I would say let's say the late eighties.
0: And what uh, did you move towards to corbina later, or was that one of the first fish you targeted? At?
1: Well. I started fishing the beach with Nick. We started fishing a lot up and down the beaches, and we were catching perch and halibut and all sorts of stuff. But I remember one day, I was in, I think it was Hamrosa Beach, and it was the early 90s, and I was with Nick, and we were fishing, I think it was in the fall. And there was some really, it was a good perch bite, and we were just catching these fish blind casting, and all of a sudden, I got a nice tug, and I started fighting it, and he came down the beach, and I landed this corbina. And... He goes, oh my god, that's fantastic, Al! You got a corbina. He goes, you know, that's one of the hardest fish to catch on the fly. I go, really? He goes, oh yeah, it's really tough. <laughs> well, back then we were fishing lead core, and we were fishing. You know, we were throwing like cable to get you know yeah. to get the flies to sink out and stuff. It wasn't a subtle game; it was more of dredging. So I was excited. I'm like, oh my god, I caught a corbina. I didn't really think much of it, and then as years went by, in the summertime, I would start. We would start to see all these. These fish were always there, but they were kind of hard to catch, and I would wait. I'd be wading out in the water, and a lot of times the corbina would be hitting me on the back of the leg, and I didn't realize it until, like, around the early 2000s, there was a bunch of young guys that were starting to get really into sight fishing, and we started connecting with each other on the beaches, like, and we called each other the Corvina Patrol because there wasn't many people doing it, and we started realizing, get out of the water, get on the sand, and Fish really light sinking lines, and try to get in front of these fish. And first few years we were struggling. We would get, we were catching them, but not with any really consistency. Um, and then finally, my buddy Paul, Paul Cronin, he started playing around with the Merkin fly, and made it with synthetics EP fibers, and we called it the Surf and Merkin. And that fly changed the game for Caribbean fishing, at least for us. Nobody, like I said, nobody was doing it and we mm-hmm. were all catching fish on this fly. It started out being a gray fly because it represented a sand crab, but then Paul started playing around with different colors, and the pink seemed to be the money fly because you could see it so much better than the gray fly. And he yeah. started using the pink merkin. It would land soft, and it would throw a V-wake in the sand just like a regular sand crab, and they were eating it so hard that a lot of times they would, putting it down their throat. You'd have to use forceps to get the fly out of their throat. They wanted wow. that fly really bad. So really we kind of, that out. kind of cracked the code. Yeah, and then I wrote the article about it in, I think, Saltwater Sportsman, I think in the, in the early 2000s. I wrote the article about how we cracked that code, and Paul put the fly in that magazine. And, and then, you know, people started coming out. We started seeing more people fishing for them. But that really was the game-changer. So
0: you guys were like the pioneers of this whole thing, huh? I mean, prior to
1: I mean, I'm sure, some I people were catching
0: them on bait and stuff, right? But
1: but on yeah, the fly? yeah, a lot of guys were catching them on bait, you know, on sand crabs and worms, and they they use mussels and clams and pile worms and ghost shrimp, and guys catch them. But the fly game was sort of a hit and miss. I mean, for many years we fished for corbina and we would catch a couple, but every time I caught a corbina, I would save the fly. And think, okay, this is the fly that's going to work, and it would wouldn't work, you know it would be like you'd get one and then you'd be lucky if you get another one until we we landed on that Merkin fly, and then, like I think my buddy Paul the first one of the first years he was using that fly, he got like maybe twenty seven or twenty eight fish in the season, a very short season, and it was like okay this this is this was really happening, so we all started catching yeah. fish after that, yeah. but us, uh, but I wouldn't say, I't I wouldn't say we were the pioneers because there were guys oh. that were catching Corbina. Early on, I've talked to people that, that got them like on fly in like maybe the late sixties, early seventies, you know, but they were not consistent. They might have caught one or two and that was the end of that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So the patrol itself, how many guys were in the patrol (laughs) in the Corvino patrol? You know,
1: I'm going to say there was probably seven or eight of us that, and some of us, some of them were from up north, like in the Ventura area. And some Mm -hmm. of them were from our area down here, and there was, like, maybe one or two down south. But the majority of the guys were from north and L.A. area that we all kind of – we all kind of converged. Like, when the fishing was good up there, we would go up north and fish those beaches. And then when we started getting fish down by us, they would come down and fish with us. And we would all meet pretty much on the same beaches and spread out and and change notes and talk and try to figure it out. So, yeah, it was fun.
0: Cool. Yeah. Well, tell us about the corbina itself. It's not a fish that everybody I don't think is aware of and, or, you know, what it even looks like or acts like. So can you give us a little background its characteristics? Yeah, sure,
1: sure. I mean, how big the they get, history? Say, well, I would say, you know, a really big corbina would be something that's in the range of an eight-pound fish. The all-tackle record, I think, is seven pounds, 15 ounces. I was caught on eight-pound test. The largest one on fly was by a guy a friend of ours, Doug Yamatsu, and that's a six pound fish. He got that on six pound tippet in long Beach. So I mean I've seen fish that were close to ten pounds. I've seen maybe <laughs> one or two in my entire career, but the majority of the size fish you're going to catch are going to be probably in the three to five pound range. It's two to five pound range, I would say, and they kind of resemble. They're in the croaker family, okay, so they have that little barbell under their chin. They kind of look a little bit like a redfish, but they're not honest. You know, redfish are honest. You put a fly in front of a redfish, they're going to eat it. You put a fly in front of a striped bass, they're going to eat it. You put a fly in front of a corbina, they decide if they want to eat it or not. So they're (laughs) not an honest fish, and that's why they're so frustrating, and that's why a lot of people, it takes them a while to get one. I mean, I know people that have gone four seasons, and not caught one, and all of a sudden they'll get one. Um, yeah. It's definitely a fish that you have to pay your dues to start them. But once you pay your dues and you understand how to catch them and you understand what they're doing and learn their, their habits and get the flies in the right places, then you can start catching them consistently. Anybody can catch a Corvina consistently once you learn the techniques and understand how the fish moves around. The best season I ever had Corvina fishing, I never fished for them. I took my camera, and I told myself, okay, I am not going to pick up a fly rod this year. I'm going to just observe these fish. And I was down the beach with my camera, my long lens, and I just sat and I watched them. And it was funny because everywhere I was, if I was leaning down on my knee, taking a picture, a bunch of my buddies from the Corbina Patrol would be running up on me and casting over my head because they knew I caught fish. So I was always—it was so much fun, though. But I learned a lot yeah. just by just by observing.
0: That's what so many of the guests on my show have said over the years. No matter what kind of fish it is, spend time yeah. observing. We, we're so anxious to get get the line into the water that we forget that we need to study our, our quarry and. Uh, and what's around them. So yeah, I hear you on that. I had Steve Ramirez on my show not too long ago, and mm-hmm. he was talking about, one of the questions that came up was, uh, from the audience was, was, because he was traveling around the country fishing for different fish, and, and they asked him, you know, what was the, one of the most challenging fish, and, and Corvina was at the top of his list. He said that's, Corvina, he thought were tougher than Permit, and everybody knows Permit are tough, so
1: i would agree that catching a corbina uh consistently on a fly is much harder than catching a permit and there's a couple of reasons for that well first i want to just talk a little bit about the fish itself again i want to just go back sure the fish are kind of triangular in shape okay and they don't have an air bladder so which what's interesting about that is they can literally slide in an inch of water and one of the key things I try to tell people about corbina fishing is when you get down to the beach and we try to fish areas that are flat beaches. So the waves come in slow and we can look at what's going on and look for pushes. We can look at where they're at. But I always try to figure out when I get to a beach and I try to think like a corbina, how's that corbina going to get up on this beach to get to that sand crab bed and how's he going to leave? And a lot of times that's really a big deal because you'll see waves, especially in the summer when when the weather is really kind of getting down to warmer and the, and the water warms up, and it's, we get like a June gloom weather pattern where we get a lot of, like, overcast in the morning and there's no wind and the, the ocean lays down beautifully, that's a great time to spot fish corbina. And sometimes the light isn't perfect, so you've got to really look for the little telltale clues And like I said, you got to try to figure out how they're going to move across the flat. If you get down there in an early minus low tide and you can see the layout of the beach, you can look at all the real estate, you'll see all the imperfection in the sand. You'll see that there will be areas where there might be a little trough area or a cut or something like that. And that's going to come into play when those waves start coming up on that beach. And sometimes you'll get these waves that angle. They angle in like on 45 degrees, and they'll make like a little V-shape and there might be about three inches more water in that V-shape as it's coming up on the flat, that's where a corbina is going to be. He's going to be in that little extra push to get up to that flat to hit that sand crab bed. So sometimes yeah. if I could find that pattern and I know that this is the way they're coming up, I'll try to get my fly out in front of that little V-shape before it comes up and strip through it, and I've caught fish that way. Even though you didn't yeah. see them, I just know that that's where they got to be, the only way they can get on the flat. So you got to kind of try to break the puzzle down, figure out how they're moving. It's really important.
0: Great, great. Now, before the show, we were talk, chatting a little bit about where Corbina are, and tonight's show is talking about California. But you want to tell people where what their range
1: is, so that sure. Uh, again, sure. I, so I yeah. live in I live in Los Angeles. I live right next to LAX. My local beach is Dockweiler Beach, which is right. I mean, the airplanes fly right over it. I would say. The range that we see corbina here in California would probably be just Santa Barbara, maybe a little bit above Santa Barbara, but Santa Barbara would be the northern part of our range, and then it goes all the way down to San Diego, even into Mexico, into Mag Bay, there'll be corbina. And if you keep going south, I think that they even get a fish that's very similar to the corbina, looks just like it in Peru, in South America. But in, for California, I would say San Diego to Santa Barbara is our main range. And those fish are going to show up in numbers probably in, towards the end of June when the sand crab beds start, start happening. And I think if they time it within the there's a spawning situation that happens, at the same time we get the sand crab beds that show up because they start coming in mass, and you'll see big schools of fish coming in and bombing the sand crab beds. And that usually happens in the, the beginning of July. Okay. I usually like to check the water temperatures. And over the years, it seems like that 67, 68 degree water temperature. When that's consistent for three or four days, two or three days, the fish are crawling all over the place. Now, that's not to say that at 63 degrees you can find them, but you want that consistent water temperature. And I've seen when it hits that 67, 68, and it's consistent, it's usually coveena time. Okay. There are. Okay. So that's one of the one of the little triggers I look at is the temperature. And also, you've got to look at where the food source is. And most of the time, right. in the early summer, they're going to be on sand crab beds. You find the sand crab beds, you can look at the birds, you can look at the typography, you can get down there on a minus low tide and look at the beaches and try to figure out where those beds are. They're going to come and hit those beds. That's what you want to fish on top of those beds, because that's where they're going to be coming.
0: Okay. Let's take a break here, Al, and come back. I want to explore more the timing and so forth of when the are sure. on the bite's. But just give me uh, 30 seconds, we'll be right back, and we'll dive right back in. Musky Town is so much more than a musky fly shop. Whether you're a musky fly fishing guide and experienced musky under, or just getting into predators on the fly, wherever life's adventures take you, Musky Town's proven lineup helps you be more successful on the water. They have rods, reels, lines, and flies for musky, pike, and bass. Most of their flies are tight in-house, and they fish them at every possible opportunity that they know what works, why it works, and exactly what you need to put big fish in the net. Sit back, relax, enjoy legendary fly shop service, and please let them know if there's ever anything that they can help you with. Next time you think of musky, go to muskytown. That's muskytown.com or call them at 763-312-6012. That's muskytown.com or call them at 763-312-6012. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. And we're talking with Al Quattrocci about California Corbina on the fly. If you'd like to ask Al a question, just go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send in your question. So Al, I always ask my guests at this point in the show, you know, what's going on in your fly fishing worlds? I know you're involved in a lot of different things, so enlighten us.
1: Well, Recently I've been doing a lot of outreach stuff. I did a program at the Patagonia store in Santa Monica last month on diversity in fly fishing, trying to get more people of color involved in our sport, and we screened the film Mighty Waters, and Shannon Devander was there, the director, and uh, it was just a wonderful night. We raised money for the Mayfly Project to help foster children. And then this December 10th I have uh, another event coming up with the uh, Southwest Federation it's going to be called the Double Haul Ball. It was an event that I used to do back in the day when I was doing the One Surf Fly. And that's an all-day uh, saltwater day. We have fly tires. We have Federation casters. We have presentations by guides. And I have Hobie, Cat, Hobie talking about kayaking and all sorts of fun stuff. So that's going to be a full day. And, and all the money that we raise will go to youth programs for the Federation Southwest Council and for the um, Mighty the Mayfair project which helps foster children. I have that coming up down the line. In between that, I'm the West Coast editor for Tail Magazine, so I'm trying to always gather content for good articles. And I'm also involved with the Museum of Fly Fishing in Manchester, Vermont. I try to help do outreach programs and educational programs for them as well. Yeah, I have a lot on my plate. I try to to fish whenever I can. I was just recently up at the Delta this past weekend. I fished the Yuba River. I floated it for some steelhead which was a lot of fun, and that was a nice little break. My buddy John Sherman does the Sims Pro Day up in the Delta once a year. I went up there and I tied flies and met a bunch of old friends and just had a great time. That's kind of what I've been doing lately. Cool,
0: cool. Now, are you still actively uh, doing any guiding or fly casting lessons?
1: Yeah, we're always doing casting lessons, especially for people taking a lot of exotic trips. You know, my mm-hmm. buddy Jimmy, we, uh, we work with people try to back out their trips and take a look at what they have to do to accomplish the task. We want to make sure that when they get to their destination, the first day they're there, they're fishing. They're not trying to learn something new, learn how to make a certain cast or deal with wind or whatever it has to be. We we make sure that they're ready. And uh, it's been really wonderful. We've transformed many, many fly fishing people, a lot of them on the older side that actually came back to us and said, man, I wish I worked with you guys 20 years ago. You know, I'm just having so much fun now. So that's been rewarding, you know, and we do that all the time. We're always, in fact, we have a thing called coffee casting. We do it on Fridays. We go, we go to an IHOP, we all have breakfast, and then we walk out to a park and we all cast. Everybody casts different rods and lines. We compare notes and, you know, it's like playing golf. You know, you've got to swing the club, right? If you're going to, if you're going to be good. We try to cast as much as we can.
0: Now, how people are interested in getting a hold of you? What's the best way to get in touch with you?
1: I would say the best way to get in touch with me is to email me. Um, okay. I would say love to fly fish media at gmail dot com. Love love to fly, L-O-V-E fish. Love to fly fish media at gmail dot com, and it's L-O-V-E, and then the number two. Love to fly fish media at gmail.com.
0: Okay, great. Great. Well, thanks for sharing that. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Well, thanks for sharing all that. Well, you are busy, man, and all sounds like fun, though. (laughs) Might as well be fun when you're busy. That's the way I like it. Well, let's talk about that. Roy uh, Fukushima in Orange, California. I want to know what the best time of year to target Corbina. You were just talking about June, but is there – what's the scope of the season?
1: That's a good question. I know Roy. Roy's a good friend. Roy, uh, basically I would say in our area, South Bay, the best time to start looking at the Corbina is toward the end of June, beginning of July. Just check those water temperatures, and when they hit that magic 67, 68, they're going to be active, and you got a good chance of catching them. But it's interesting. People up north of us, yeah, up in the Ventura area, they get a run of Corbina before us, and the water's colder. I don't understand why, but they'll get a nice run of fish in, like, April and May. And as long as the temperatures are consistent up there, they, those fish tend to show up. And then they leave, and then the guys, they come down and fish with us. But Corbina are typically going to be active when the sand crab beds are, are are big and they get into that spawn situation, which is that the early summer months. As the summer progresses, they start filling up with sand crabs. They're less grabby. They're harder to catch, but they're still around. I've caught one on January 1st. I caught a corbina off the beach. It wasn't side casting, but they're around. And if you fish near the openings of marinas and bays, I think in the winter months, they actually go back into those bays and they winter in a lot of those back bays. And then occasionally they'll come back out to the surf when everything lays down. So you can get them. You can get them all, all during the whole course of the year. You can catch them. Most of the time oh, you are wow. blind fished. But what the true site casting situation that we see is going to be in the summer months, for sure. Okay.
0: Yeah, David Garland in Long Beach was asking about that. He says that it always seems to be a summer target, but and he wanted to know where they go late fall into spring. So are you thinking back bay, estuary kind of
1: areas? You know, Tip, I would say, David, we really don't know for sure because Corbina has never been a fish that's been tagged. There isn't enough money involved in Corbina. I mean, it used to be a commercial fish. But now it isn't, and it, there's really not much effort to pay to it, and we don't have the data to tell us where they go. They could be going to Mexico. They could be going out to deep water. We don't have that scientific data to really know for sure. I do know that I see them in the back bays in the wintertime, and, you know, occasionally they're going to – I think there's going to be fish that are home guard fish that stick stick around, and I think there are fish that definitely migrate, and I don't know where that where that is. It could be south. It could be into deeper water. That I don't know.
0: Yeah, that was my next question is, do you notice a migration? Because I was thinking, well, maybe they, you know, as the water warms, maybe they come up from the south and move their way up to, you know, the Santa Barbara area. But you were just talking about an opposite situation, it sounded like. So kind of semi-unpredictable, it sounds like.
1: Yeah, I mean, I spoke with Dr. Milton Love. He's the foremost fish biologist on the West Coast, and when I was doing my research for my book, and he basically told me, he said, you know, we just don't have the the data to know where they go and what they do. So I just yeah. take it. He's the expert. i got to just listen to what he says.
0: So the Corbina Patrol is just always kind of monitoring the beaches, looking for when the fish start, the crabs start happening, and the fish start coming in, and then then the texting and emails start to fly, right?
1: <laughs> well, you know, that's how it was in the early days. Now we all know what to, what to look for where to go and yeah. I know that in a certain tide cycle in the summer if I go to a certain beach I'm going to meet up with some of the corvina guys. I just know they're going to be there cuz <laughs> we've always been on those same beaches so. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: What type of habitat do they prefer?
1: I would say during the time of the year when we sight fish them and it's the most exciting time to catch them they're going to be in shallow water and the best opportunity you're going to have is to try to find beaches that are flat, flat beaches Mm -hmm. that hold sand crabs. The next best tip I'll give people is in the summer months, we get minus low tides in the early morning. Now you can catch them all during the day, you know, depending on the way the tides go. But for people that are new to the sport, and if I was going to put my money down on trying to catch a Corvina for somebody that was starting out, this is what I would do. I would try to time my, my time on the beach to the minus low tide. I want it incoming off the minus low. And why minus low? Okay, minus low tides push all the water off the beach. Okay, an, it's an extreme tide. And what that does is it pushes all the corbina off the beach for a tide cycle. Now that allows you to see where the crabs beds are and stuff. So in early morning when you get the low light and if you time a minus low tide, let's say, let's make believe the minus low tide is it bottoms out at 4.30 in the morning. So you know it's going to take an hour to push, and then it's going to start coming up. Maybe by 6 o'clock or 6.30 is when you're going to have enough water on that flat for the fish to feel comfortable to get into those sand crab beds. And I call that the magic window. When that happens, you're going to get about a half an hour to maybe an hour window of those fish actively feeding because there's perfect amount of water they can slide up. They'll have to do a headstand because there's not enough water for them to get their heads in the sand. So you can visually see them working a flat. And what you want to do is when that happens, you want to get yourself in front of a sand crab bed, cast your fly, lay it on the bed, and wait for the push, wait for that big water to come in, because they're going to be on that push. And as soon as that push comes over that bed, start stripping your sand crab fly over that bed, and a lot of times they'll see it moving and they'll pick it up. That's probably your best shot. Now, if you're more advanced and you've done it for a while, then you can track the fish and you can walk up and down the beaches and try to get good shots at them. What happens is there's different ways to catch them. That's that's the first stage when they start coming up on the beaches. After the water starts filling in, then we get these trough situations where they run parallel to the beach. Okay, there's enough water for them to be comfortable now, and you'll see a slight drop-off to a little trough. They'll hold the edge of the trough, and then every occasionally they'll come up out of the trough, out of the sand crab bed, and then go back into the trough. So when they're doing oh, okay. that and they're going parallel, you really have to get way out in front of them and try not to let them see you because they'll see you. If they see you, you they're not going to bite. They're not going to eat. So you've got to get way out in front of them at 45 degrees and try to get that, that crab in front of them, and sometimes they'll come chase it down right, right into shallow water and eat it. They'll eat it right at your feet. It's pretty cool. But that's a different situation. And, again, the types of lines you're going to use might change as well. So at the beginning, when you're fishing really shallow water and there's not a lot of side current, there's not a lot of hydraulics, you could probably get away with an interme- a clear intermediate line, maybe a 7, 8-foot leader, or a very, very light sinking line, like a 200-grain or 185-grain line. I like a sinking line typically because what after I cast, and sometimes I'm just putting the leader in the water. But if I do have to make a longer cast, I want that line to anchor my fly. I want it to lay flat down on the sand. So when I strip and I put my rod tip down on the sand, I never lift my rod up. I put it right, up the, right down on the sand, and I point my rod at the fly. When I strip, I can feel the end of my fly. If you can't feel the end of your fly when you're stripping it, you're out of the game because they will literally pick it up and spit it if they don't like mm-hmm. it. And then I tell people keep a cadence when you strip. If you constantly, if not fast, not slow, whatever you want to do, but keep it a cadence so that the fly is constantly moving so that when they do pick it up, you stick them. If you pop it and leave it and pop it and leave it, they could pick it up on that space that you left it. And by the time you grab it again, it's gone. So as long as you keep the fly moving, you got a good chance of sticking them. Make sure you have really sharp hooks. And you know, just be, you got to be patient. It's a crazy yeah. game. I mean, there, I, when I first was starting out, if I just touched a fish in the morning, sometimes that was a win to me. You know, <laughs> if, I, if I got a take and it and it popped off, I'd be like, okay, I'm good with that today. I'm gonna get them tomorrow. You know. Yeah. So just yeah. stick with the game plan, and you'll be able to get them.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I remember watching Lefty give a demonstration at one of the fly fishing shows in Denver. You know, he's on one of the casting ponds. And what he was demoing is just what you were talking about, about keeping your tip of your rod either in the water or, in your case, in the sand, basically. And he just demonstrated, like, okay, watch when I strip and my rod tips up. You know, watch the fly. And basically nothing happens, right? <laughs> it's like a,
1: yeah.
0: half an inch. He says, now watch this. And he put his tip into the water, straight in the line. I he says, now watch what happens when I strip. And then, of course, you see the fly move, you know, a, a great a much bigger distance. And he says, that's the difference between hooking up with fish and not hooking up with fish. But it's so, especially trout fishermen are, they always seem to have their tip in the air. You know what I mean? And uh, Yeah, well, you're then,
1: doing different things with trout. You're mending, yeah. you're doing pile casts. There's lots of different things. But yeah. for the saltwater game, it's so important for people that are learning or people that are even, you know, have been casting for a while, is that when you practice your casting, make sure that you – extend that line so that you that line lays down nice and flat and straight. Because otherwise you can, like you just said, you might strip two or three times before you move that fly. You're taking right. all the slack out of your line before you move the fly. So practice laying that fly down straight so that when that line is straight down and you give that first strip, you're moving the fly. That's really important. That's going to separate the really good anglers from the average anglers. Okay? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, And then when I tell people to practice, practice what you're going to be fishing with. Most people, they'll get their fly line. oh, I'm going to practice my casting today. They'll pick up a floating line, they'll put on a piece of yarn, and they'll just kind of practice. That, to me, is not practicing casting. If you were a bowler, professional bowler, and you used a 13-pound bowling ball in your tournament every day, every time you competed, and then a big tournament's coming up, and I say, you know what, today, I'm going to give you an eight-pound bowling ball. Let me see what you can do. You'd be out of your game. Yeah, so what yeah. I like to do is when I teach people casting is whatever setup you're going to use for Corbina, and it could be whatever you have. It could be a five-weight, a six-weight, a seven-weight. Get the right sinking line that matches it in grain so that you can cast it. Put up, put the same type of leader you're going to use for, for fishing for Corbina and put the same fly. And when you put the fly on, if you're going to fish a merkin in or whatever, bend the hook down. Bend, you know, just crunch that hook. Don't cut the hook off. Just bend it down so that you maintain the same weight of what you're going to be using in a real-life situation, and that's what you practice with. Yep. So then when you get to the water, there's no mystery. You know, this. you know your leader length is right. You know the fly weight is right. You've made these casts. You've practiced it, and you can put the fly where you've got to put it. So that's that's really important. And the thing that makes corbion Efficient so frustrating is we have hydraulics, we have moving water. It's the ocean's in flux. It's moving. There's currents. Right. There's side current. So how do we get that fly in the right position? You could drop it. You think it's perfect, and all of a sudden it gets pushed. So it's constantly peppering these fish to get the fly where it needs to be. And that's going to just come with practice. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Good tips. Good tips. Need to take another break here, Al, but we'll be right back and talk more about fly fishing for Corbina. So hang tight. I'll be right back. Enrico Puglisi flies pride themselves with creating unique and one-of-a-kind flies and fly tying material. Enrico has been experimenting with durable, synthetic, and natural materials to create flies that catch fish for more than 20 years. His innovative products include brushes, fibers, and components Uh, that have made a major impact on the direction of saltwater fly fishing, and his methods and materials are respected worldwide. Whether you want your flies hand-tied for you or would like to tie your own, be sure to visit Enrico Puglisi Flies and browse through their online catalog. Visit epflies.com and do a little shopping today. Again, that's epflies.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Al Quattrocci about California Corvina on the fly. If you'd like to ask Al a question, fill out that form on our homepage, send it in, and we'll try to get them answered tonight on the show. And we do have a, a few questions here, some of the, some kind of random stuff here, but why don't we try to knock these off here, Al, and before we dive back sure. in. John in L.A. wanted to know, do you ever get calico bass when fishing for Corvina?
1: Um, I know that a friend head? of mine has gotten a calico bass off the beach, usually when you're fishing near jetties. Adjacent to jetties or rocky areas is a good chance you can catch a calico bass off the beach. Okay. People, but it's not, it's not going to be something that you're going to target. It's going to be sort of like a bycatch. But it yeah. does happen yeah. occasionally.
0: Yeah. yeah. Denny in Franklin, Tennessee wants to know what your favorite game fish is and why.
1: What's my favorite game fish? Wow. That's a tough one, Denny. <laughs> I know there's I so love, many I good love, ones. I, love, I, love, I I love fishing for Corbina, obviously, but I love fishing for bonefish.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And I love fishing for I love fishing for calicos. I like fishing for everything. I, I really don't have any favorites. I mean, I if I was going to pick one fish, I would say it would be the, the saltwater the greatest fish to catch on a fly rod. There's actually two. It would either be the tarpon in shallow water yeah. or catching a big bonefish on a fly. Those so yeah. there's nothing like those two. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Tarpon are one of my favorites, too. They're just awesome fish. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. And the way that they look so prehistoric is really, really exciting. John, again, in L.A., he says, since you release fish anyway, would some type of tagging program help out science? So I guess he's looking for a volunteer research project here.
1: I think we need it if we want to learn more about these fish It's not inexpensive to have a tagging program, though. I think it is kind of an expensive thing to do, to get all that data and track everything. But I'm all for it. If anybody wants to do it, I'm in.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good idea. Okay, well, let's dive back in here. You've kind of talked about this in different parts and places, but maybe we can dig a little bit deeper. Jeremy Watkin in San Diego, he says, he hasn't hooked up yet with Corbina. He says, what are the optimal conditions for catching them? You talked about the minus low tide. Are there other things? Yeah, minus the-
1: low tide. Try to look at your um, moon phases. You know, I think your best shot is on a new moon where there's no moon, but you get the full swing. Those are my favorite tides. You know, the minus low on the new moon. They're not going to be feeding at night as much, and, it's almost like Las Vegas. The odds are going to be in your favor if you can get down there early and get those fish really hungry to come up on those flats to eat those crabs. You're in the right place at the right time. You're going to connect. That's my best advice to you. Best shot.
0: Okay. You've been talking about sand crabs. Do uh, Corbina eat any any other kinds of crustaceans or yes,
1: Corvina clams eat blood bloodworms, are... mussels, clams, pile worms, ghost shrimp. They eat grunion. Certain times oh, yeah, grunion. Um, but <laughs> but the, sand, the sand crab during the time that we focus on them for the sight fishing is the bait of choice, I would say. You know, okay. They're after those soft-shell sand crabs, for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you mentioned grunion. You know, we, before the show when we first talked, I, I told you that I went to school in Santa Barbara, and I remember going down to the beach for grunion, you know, at night. Uh, with buckets. yeah. Do they still run cool. in California? They
1: still do it, yes. Yes, yeah. they still run. They're kind of cool yeah. to, to experience yeah. that at least once, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, um, it was it
1: was, yeah. it was, cool. In, the, in the fall, in the, I mean, not in the fall, but sometimes in the fall, in the spring, you know, when the fish are staging prior to actually making that big push in the summer, they will be fished out in the beach, you know, like in April and May. There'll be a lot of corvina just waiting for that magic time to get up on the beaches. When that temperature is right, they feel comfortable in shallow water, and they just bombard the beaches. But before that, like in April and May, they're all fish up, running up and down. That's the time you can use a small clouser. You can use a size 4, size 6 olive and white clouser. And a lot of times people catch them on the clouser. Also, a little red worm fly works really good. I hooked a bunch of them this year on the little red worm. Now, are those...
0: Uh... Are you blind casting in those kind of conditions?
1: I would be blind casting or sometimes vicinity casting. You know, I'll see a push, I'll see fish moving, and I'll throw in that area and, yeah. and fish my fly. Or yeah. if you know that there's a nice trough in a certain part of the beach, it's just, you know, you can watch the surface sometimes. They'll walk out in the water, and all of a sudden they'll dip down, <laughs> and you'll go, okay, let that guy go out surfing. I'm going to fish that spot. You know that that water is like a couple of feet deeper there. That's a good holding spot for Corbina. So I would cast to work that area.
0: Now, these sand crabs, yeah. are they moving in and out on the beach, or are they stationary? In other words,
1: no. Uh, no, are, they, they, are move, they trying to they stick move,
0: with the water line? Or?
1: They move up and down the beach. It's interesting. You'll see in the mornings when the birds will be, you'll see all these little footprints of birds and little, little holes in the sand where they, they peppered the beds. But they'll constantly move up and down. Yeah, a lot of times they're right in the tidal zone, right in where the soft sand is. But other times they're up higher, so it, you just got to look for them.
0: Well, when you say up and down the beach, then I'm I'm thinking up and down the beach means parallel to the water line. And what I was talking about is in and out from the water line. In other words, are are the crabs usually right where the water is? Most frequent. I don't know how to explain it, but you know what I'm they're saying? usually like,
1: where the water, where the sand is wet. They want yeah. that wet sand. They can they can burrow real easily into it. So sometimes, depending on the tide, they're kind of left dry. Once the tide pulls out, they're just going to kind of sink out, but they're going to be in that wet area of sand. And then once the tide comes up, they rise up again. Okay, but they will move up and down the beach, parallel to the beach, and also vertically to the beach. Sometimes okay, the beds can be way yeah. up. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Interesting. So you watch the birds, too, to look. for. Tell us some more about – well, before I get into that, I want to get into more of that strategy stuff. But let's talk about the fly gear. You mentioned, I think you said five, six, seven weight. Is that right? And you talked about the lines already. What about the leader setup? Because I know in your book you detailed out a few setups for leaders. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, you
1: don't have to get too – I'll tell you a couple of lines. So one line you can look at is the real Fathom, Fathom, F-A-T-H-O-M. That's a mm-hmm. good line. Another one is the uh, scientific angler, the Sonar Titan. It's uh, it, it, it has an intermediate running line with a sink 3 tip, like the six-weight In that line is, like, 210 grains. That's that's a good line. The real one is, like, I think for for seven weight, I think it's 224 grains. Anything between, like, say, 185 and 220 grains is a good shallow sinking line. It's not going to be a depth bomber, but it's going to be enough that it'll sink maybe three inches a second or four inches a second and lay down flat. Again, if you have great situations in between tides where it's, the water's not moving around a lot and the fish are kind of staging, you can get away with a, with an intermediate line. You can even get away with a floater, but that's not optimum because floating line is going to push that line around, and it's, you're going to lose contact with your fly. Intermediate right. line, you might be able to do a little bit better, but not. I usually fish the two lines, the intermediate or the sinking, but I would say I, think that I fish the sinking line maybe 90% of the time. So there is opportunities with the intermediate line. I've caught them on the intermediate line. I've done well with it, but it's got to be really the perfect condition. high sun, real skittish fish, shallow water, and I can lay that fly down a little bit more stealthy with the, with the intermediate clear. I'll use a clear intermediate line. Okay, leader systems. Okay, if it's really sunny and you want a little bit longer leader, you can probably go to about a nine or ten foot leader. You know, you can go twenty to fifteen. 10 or 12. Uh, I like to use Floral. I like to use Miser or Tatsu. They're Seagar lines, but they have very thin diameter. So the 12-pound diameter in a Miser is like 8-pound test, you know, but it's really strong. So I'll use that. Sometimes I'll use straight – I'll use a straight piece of – like a 6-foot piece of 12 if the water's getting deeper and I want to get my fly down. I'll use a a little bit shorter leader with a heavier fly. You don't have to get fancy with the leader system. Like a seven to nine foot leader in a 10 to 12 pound pivot is going to be more than enough. They're not really going to be leader shy in the shallow water with the surf zone. There's a lot going on. So they're going to be, they're going to be hitting that fly from behind. Uh, They're not going to be looking at the leader.
0: And what about
1: about the, what
0: about the knot to tie the fly on? You have a special knot you like to use?
1: Yes. Yes, the knot that I like to use is a non-slip mono loop or a lefty cray loop. You can Google them. It's pretty strong. It's about 95% strength and it gives, it allows the fly to swing. It gives it a lot more movement and it also allows, allows the fly to sink faster. It won't hinge it it's straight down. So it'll give mm-hmm. you a lot of movement. Yeah, I love that. Okay. I love that loop knot.
0: Okay. What other gear do you need to fish for cordina?
1: You could bring a couple of hand grenades, if you, uh, get a little frustrated. What other gear again, like you don't have to go out and get any special gear. You can do this all with stuff you have i mean you can a lot of my buddies fish with four weights you know you can fish with bamboo rods you can fish with i've caught them on five old fiberglass rods you know with with click and paw you know flugers, old flugers. You can have fun with them you know, but the my go to um just, uh, rod would probably be a six or a seven weight okay. in the summer, because we don't have really nasty, big tides and serious surf in the summer. It's, it's really kind of laid down, so you can have some fun with lighter lighter rods.
0: Well, in some of the pictures I see guys um, with stripping baskets, and then I see other guys with no stripping baskets.
1: Is okay. That, uh, okay. That's think a good... one... Yeah, go no, ahead. That, that's a great, great observation, and I think it's it's something that's a personal preference. I tend to like using a stripping basket because I like to move up and down the beach and carry my line with me. Yes, you can get away with not using a stripping basket if you're going to stay in a certain area and you can really watch your line. A lot of times we're not fishing in the water. We're fishing way back on the beach. So if you're on the wet sand way back on the beach, you can lay your line down in a nice circular way and it won't get tangled up and you can fish that way. If you're, if you, if you're good at Managing your line, I would, I tend to like to use a stripping basket, but it's totally a, a preference. And a lot of the younger guys that started getting away from the stripping baskets, I think it was almost because it's like a cool thing to do. Like, hey, I don't want to be walking around with a stripping basket. I can do it without a stripping basket, and that's great. You know, go for it. I watch also watch the same young guys without the stripping basket step on their line and blow a cast on a Corbino. There's that factor. You just as long as you're careful and you know what you're doing. You yeah, can do whatever you like. Yeah. Whatever makes you happy.
0: Yeah. Yep. I can definitely see that because as soon as that water starts to get involved with the line then you you're fighting that. And uh if you've got just flat sand and much easier to manage. Any particular type of um uh stripping basket that you like or recommend?
1: Um I like two stripping baskets. It doesn't matter the style. It's more about how they work. I like Mm -hmm. to have two types of stripping baskets. One stripping basket I like will have holes in it so that if water does hit me and I'm fishing the surf, it'll drain. And then another stripping basket I'll use has no holes in it. If I'm going to be wet, wet waiting in a a bay, I'll put a little bit of water in it and let it float, and I'll strip my line into it that way so that, yeah, so it stays lubricated. So I like to have the two styles for different applications. But there's so many good stripping baskets today. I still like the hard basket, and I also like the one that there's a foam basket that I helped design. I don't think they make it anymore, but it was made out of, like, a foam, and it was a little bit deeper. And only because in California in the wintertime we do get wind, and I didn't want my line to be blowing out, so we made a little bit deeper basket, and I'll use that in the winter. Mm.
0: Okay, okay. So um, sounds like it, yeah, yeah, but it uh, makes sense the way you've described it, so thanks thanks for sharing that. Let me uh, sure. take another quick break here, and then uh, let's talk about flies and get into some strategies, some more deeper into the strategies you use to catch fish. So Hang tight, and we'll be right back. Fly Fishers International needs your support. Its conservation projects at both the national and club level are addressing critical issues of importance to fly fishers. FFI efforts include being a strong advocate for removing dams on the Snake River, preserving water quality through their Science on the Fly program, and taking action to conserve the declining populations of Atlantic striped bass. FFI serves as a strong advocate for fly fishing in all waters for all fish, to preserve and promote the arts of fly casting and fly time, and to help ensure future generations can continue to enjoy these one-of-a-kind experiences. These efforts won't nearly be as effective without your help. If you're not already a member, we invite you to join Fly Fishers International as they work to cultivate conservation, education, and community within the sport of fly fishing. Join Fly Fishers International today and help support their fine work. For more information, go to their website at flyfishersinternational.org. That's flyfishersinternational.org. And get a membership there today. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. And we're talking with Al Quattrochi about California corbina on the fly. If you'd like to ask Al a question, just send it in using that form on our homepage, and we'll see if we can get it answered. So we have
1: – I want to mention one thing. Sure. There's other ways to catch corbina. And a lot of guys fish them in the in the back bay, okay. like, you know, different bay systems that we have in California. And okay. they're fishing with a floating line. They're fishing with a floating line, and they'll they'll use a long leader, like an 18 foot leader, poly leader to a to floral. They'll throw long casts off drop offs, and they'll use their floating line as an indicator. They'll strip, watch the S curve of the floating line, and then any little tick they'll set up on it. And it's pretty deadly technique, but it's not side casting. So, okay, I I know guys that have caught 10 corvina in a day. But it's it's all, You're right? Yeah, dredging, going deep, and that can be a very deadly method. So if people could try that, if they really want to try to get one and try that method, but yeah. we tend to do it the hard way. We like to sidecast them, and that's the big. Oh, that's the hard. Yeah, part. it's
0: so much. It's so much more exciting. It's just like uh, when I was down in Belize this year, I was fishing for tarpon in a deep channel. Uh, the, the fish were down deep, and we're using. 350 grain sinking lines <laughs> and and getting right. down. And yeah, and you hook up and it's fun. It's fun to watch them jump, but it's not nearly as exciting as being in a little mangrove bay and watching that fish come out of the mangroves to take your fly. It's like, is just so much more exciting to see the tape and fish for the fish right. that way. Yeah, so I hear you. I hear you big time. Yeah, let's talk about flies because, you know, you've mentioned the one fly and Actually, uh, Jay Mirakoshi in Fresno who has been yeah. on my show as well. Yeah, he fishes down in Cabo area.
1: Um, I just was with Jay up in the Delta. I just saw him
0: oh, oh, good, good. Yeah, I haven't uh, talked yeah. to Jay in quite a while. But he he wrote in here on the Internet, he says, what's your best fly pattern? And you had mentioned the pink merkin, which in your book you yeah, call that, the surfing that, merkin, that, right?
1: Yes, the surfing merkin is a definite go-to. The other one I tie is a holy moly. Which is similar. It's just everything's tied a little bit more vertically, so I get it'll might might be able to be picked up through soft sand a little bit better. And then there's the the deer hair sand crab by Ned Gray, which is a classic. That's a fly that you use when they're really shallow. You just let that you cast that fly and let the let the wave roll it back, and sometimes they'll they'll pick them up that way. And then another good fly I would say would be the the Rasmur, is a good fly. And that kind Doug of Yamatu looks like a that crazy.
0: That rattler looks kind of like a crazy Charlie or something,
1: right? I mean, yeah, similar, it does. Yeah. It does. It's just that the the weight is kind of way in the back. It's uh-huh. kind of like in the mid mid section of the of the the hook. Yeah. Uh, the DIY DUI by Dougie Yamatu is a decent fly. I've caught him on my Ghost Whisper, my Ghost Shrimp pattern, and the red worm. Another good fly to, to try is that little red worm fly. Or a little clouds, little olive and white clouds. They all have their damn moments. But I if I was going to say the, the, the flies of choice, that would be the Circum Merkin or the Holy Moly. I think those – I caught five one morning on the Holy Moly. My buddy Paul just caught six last year on the Merkin in one morning. So we know wow. they they were. Yeah.
0: So most of these are shrimp or, or crab patterns, and that's what, uh, like you said, More, that's probably your so best, the ones best. I at, just
1: – the ones I just described, the holy moly and the and the surf and murkin are definitely sand crab imitations. Um, mm-hmm. that Ned Grey pattern is also a sand crab imitation. The other things are just attractors. Yeah. So, well the okay. red worm kind of looks like a little worm, but the other ones are attractor patterns, like little shrimp or little crustacean type patterns.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The red worm are you talking about trouser surfworm? Is that uh
1: Uh the trouser surfworm worm is a great pattern. Or literally just a fly with um, chenille and red marabou and a weight in it
0: Oh, work really well. (laughs) Pretty simple. Really simple. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 I think it's called, they have it here called the surf rat. But I would use it on a longer shank hook and just make it look a little bit elongated, like a worm. And that works great. Mm. Works for everything.
0: Okay. Okay. So not, not a big selection of flies you need.
1: That's the one thing I tell people. You want to catch a corvina, don't stop playing around with flies. Use something that we know is proven. Put a surfer mm-hmm. on, put a holy moly on. You're going to be in the game. At least yeah. that's one thing you don't have to worry about, do I have the right fly. You got the right fly. Now you got to make the cast, and you got to get a fish that's willing to eat.
0: Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about, let's see, uh, let's talk about seeing the fish. What are we looking yeah. for on finding the fish? We know, you know, looking for the, the sand crabs. That's stage one, it sounds like, of uh, finding the fish. But when you're actually looking the side cast, what are you looking
1: for? Okay. When I'm down there and I, like I said I'm waiting for that magic window, okay, I know I've already identified my food source. I've looked at the beach because I've been down there. I got there at the minus low tide, so everything is, The map has been exposed. It's like if the Monopoly board is already, I can see everything. I know where park place is. I know where everything is, okay? Now I wait for the tide to bring those fish to me. They're going to come up on the flat. So I'm looking for pushes. I'm looking for V-wakes. I'm looking for um, how the water, the hydraulics of the water, are going to bring those fish up, even though sometimes I can't see them. But um, I know all of a sudden you see a fish blow up in front of you. Like, how the hell did that fish get there? Well, he used that seam, that little seam that came up along the beach. He was in that seam the whole time. He never saw him. So I try to anticipate that stuff before it happens. Once they start feeding on the sand crab beds off the minus low tide, it's very easy to see them because you're going to see them come in. Sometimes their backs are out of the water. They come in, and then they'll do a headstand right on the sand crab bed. You know, and then that's kind of like coming up higher. Yeah,
0: yeah I was going to say, so they're kind of like tailing like bonefish would or whatever on the crabs.
1: Yeah. Sounds like. Yes. Yeah. And that'll happen for a very short window. It might be a half an hour. It might be 40 minutes. Because once the water gets, that tide pushes up and gets a little higher, then they're comfortable to just slide in and out. You know, they can, they don't have to do a head headstand. They can just slide right in and hit, hit the beds. bed. It's, kind, it's a very interesting game, and it's always changing. From the time they start coming in until the, the water gets higher, their attitude changes, the way their bodies move change, they start going parallel to the beach instead of perpendicular to the beach once, once it fills in and they start going at the troughs. so that when that happens, then you, you know and, and you've got good sun, you get into a situation where you get that 10 to two o'clock sun, you can start looking walking down the beaches and seeing fish from distance and then actually setting up on them and trying to make good cast on them. The only problem is, in the summertime, our beaches are crowded in California. So that's why I like to get down there early and be off the beach by 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock when people start getting down there. Because we're fishing in a very urban environment, and there's lots of people. You've got to watch your back half. You constantly have to look behind you because there's always people walking up and down. So I've been down at the beach like at 10 o'clock in the morning where there's tons of people and I'm trying to flip casts between kids playing in the sand and because the fish are right there, but they're just hard yeah. to catch.
0: <laughs> that must, yeah, that must be frustrating at times to,
1: yeah, uh, it's to see it's a, a really shot and then
0: there's some kid behind you, right, in the sand bucket. Right. Right? It always
1: happens that way. It always happens that way. You've got to watch your back cast. I mean, you know, in Venice, you can throw a back cast and hit a Harry Krishna and be in your back in about two seconds. <laughs> so it's yeah, really yeah. important to watch what you're doing.
0: Yeah, I I can see that, though. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, now, you know, I'm looking in the book and some of the diagrams. uh, It looks like, you know, sometimes they're going to be coming, like, straight at you, right? And other times you may be leading them down the beach, potentially. Is that uh, all those situations? That's right. And that's
1: all dependent on the water, the the, the height of the water and what's going on. So, like, they're going to come straight at you when the water is super low and you get that incoming tide and they're actually coming in. To eat, they're going to come straight at you. Once the water level gets up to about two or three feet, and it starts filling in, now the water's over the bed. So now they're they're retreating back into their little troughs, and then depending on the hydraulics of the water, as if we get a good push, they come right into those areas and eat. And then as the push goes out, they go back into their trough. So you got to—it's sort of a ballet. You got to watch what they're doing, try to get out in front of them, figure out what they're doing. Spend a little bit more time watching how they feed. Sometimes they're going to pattern feed. They're going to come and hit that bed two or three times in a row. So rather than just throw a cast at them right away, wait till that water gets pushed back out, and then you know the next push. As long as you're back far enough, that next push of water, is, they're going to be there again because they've already eaten on that bed. They're going to come right back. So Get that fly out on that bed. Lay it there. Wait for that push. That push comes in. As soon as that water covers the bed, starts stripping. And a lot of times you'll pick one up right there, boom, in tight.
0: So you've got to be so, ready to expect fish to be really going in any direction, left, right, center.
1: You have to anticipate. Uh, yeah. Don't wait to yeah. see the fish and cast. Sometimes okay. you really have to anticipate before they get there. you got to go and think like what they're going to do and try to be there before they get there. There's chances are you're gonna, you can catch one as soon as you see one, but it's, the window is really tight because they're going to eat and turn and go. And when they turn, you never want to cast at them. When they turn and start, you see that back set of water and they're going back and back out, let them go. It, huh? Give them yeah. up. They don't, don't, don't pepper them. And sometimes they'll come, they'll show up another 40 feet down the beach. If the tide is pushing left to right, they might, you see them hit the bed, they go away and then all of a sudden, you, where are they? And then up they show up another 40 feet to your left and then another 40 feet, to, you know, you got, you can walk down the beach and try to find the pattern that that fish is taking. And try to get in front of them. It's a really frustrating, tough game. It's not easy. We pull our how, hair out. We go crazy sometimes.
0: How long a cast do you need to make? I mean, how much space do you have to give them?
1: Um, you don't really have to cast far. If you could be accurate at 30, to 50 feet, 50-foot 50 cast is a long cast. If you're okay. you're accurate between 30 and 50 feet,
0: you're good. You're huh? in the game. Okay.
1: During the game. Now, obviously, if you can stay back further on the beach, if you want to make a little bit further cast where they really can't see you, that's your advantage, you know, if they're coming in tight. But for the most part, your casts don't have to be long. They have to be accurate.
0: And just so I have this clear, in general, you said you're anticipating where they're going to be. You're going to cast before they come rather than sometimes. Uh, into- yes, yeah,
1: sometimes you're going to cast before they come. Sometimes you're going to see them moving down the beach, parallel to the beach, and you're going to cast right in front, like 45 degrees. You know, try to get the fly as close as you can to him without spooking him. You know, or sometimes you'll cast it, let it sink, wait for him to get close, and then strip so that you can put it in front of him so he discovers the fly and keeps stripping, and then he'll turn, and he'll try to pin the fly to the the sand, and that's when you set up on him. So it's just like traditional, classic sight casting, you know, And there are going to be days in California where we get perfect conditions, clean water, nice sun, and it's like casting in the Bahamas. It's like a big swimming pool. That happens two or three times during the year. The majority of the time you're looking at nervous water, you're looking at movement, you're looking at a tail, you're trying to anticipate. You might want a vicinity cast. You may not see. You might see one or two fish, and you're like, okay, they're moving into this area over here. I'm going to throw a cast into that spot and wait, and I'm going to strip. And sometimes you see two fish, but there's really twenty fish. And then you blow up like a, a whole patch of them. You're like, "What the hell happened?" It's wow. Like it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Roy uh, Fukushima in Orange wrote in too and asked, uh, "How close does the fly have to be presented to entice a bite?" He says, "I hear corvina are bottom feeders."
1: They are bottom feeders, and the closer you can get your fly to that fish's face, the better the chances he's going to eat it. So it's you don't want to if they're tailing sometimes, and you have a, a merkin. It's nice about the merkin. The serpent merkin is. It's kind of a fluffy fly, so it doesn't hit the water hard. You could literally lay it right on them. If you see a tail come up, you can drop it right on top of that fish, and you won't spook them as long as his head's down. Okay. That's the, that's yeah. one opportunity. Okay, but when they're not, their heads aren't down. They're very very aware of movement. They, a bird flying over a corbina in shallow water will blow them up. They'll spook. So you got to really watch your calf. You got to try to get them in areas where you're close enough to them where they, you don't spook them, but yet you can strip in front of them. And that's the key. If you can get that fly and they can discover it, so it's not like the flies attacking the fish. The flies maybe right. coming off the peripheral vision of them, moving away from him. They'll come in and they'll track it and they'll eat it.
0: Right. Yeah. Pretty pretty standard presentation standard yeah, moving. Yeah, let them come after. Don't have the fly come after them. Right. Uh, Roy also had another question he wrote in here on the internet. He says, uh, do, "Do corbina make hard into the backing runs like bonefish?"
1: Uh, I would say the first when you first hook a corbina, especially if it's in shallow water, and you make that nice strip, and all of a sudden he eats it, and the water explodes. You got he ate the fly, and he's going to turn and run. He'll make a run, okay, and that, you let him go, and he might get you into your back, he will get you into your backing, a nice size Corbina, for sure. Then after that happens, you make, you gotta make sure you, you know, you, you get him on the reel, your drag is set, and you gotta play him, you gotta do side pressure. You go side back and forth, he goes right, you go left, he goes left, you go right, and work him, because if you keep him in shallow water, it beats the hell out of him. That water moving around with sand and stuff, it just, you can beat them up pretty good, so you want to get them in as quickly as you can. I don't like to fish light tippets. I, I'll fish the lightest tippet I'll fish is like a 10 pound tippet, because I want to get those fish in as fast as I can, so I can release them and they're going to be healthy. You also want to use the hydraulics of the ocean to help you land them. It, they might take two or three runs before you get. If you especially hook a nice fish, it's not going to come in right away. You're going to have to fight. You'll get them in close to the waves. He'll he'll realize he's in trouble and he'll make another run. You bring him back again, he'll get close to the waves. He doesn't like it, he'll make another run. And then eventually he'll start coming your way, and then what you want to do is time the next night-sized wave. Once he gets into that nice size wave, start walking backwards and let the water of the wave help push him up on the beach, and then you got him. So you got to use the waves to help you get him in, for sure.
0: Good. Okay, okay. I had another question come in here on the Internet, uh, Scott, Yamamoto, and Camarillo, does, do you have a strategy for steeper beaches with turtleback humps, where the crab bed is on the slope and the beans are feeding on it? Beans, I guess, meaning or be nuts, right?
1: Yes. Steep beaches, as long as it's calm, you have a shot. But if there's wave action on a steep beach, it very, it's almost impossible to to really target them. You know, there's just too much foam and too much movement in the water. But if you get the perfect conditions where it's kind of really laid down and it's a steep beach and you can see the fish, then I would say you just target them like any other game fish. You, you want to do the same things I talked about. Try to get the fly as close as you can to them. And, or sometimes you, you, they might be moving down the beach. You can get the fly out way ahead of them and wait stealthy until they get close, and then you that fly away from them. You can play different games, cat and mouse games with them, but it's still traditional sight casting. You still have to make the cast. You've got to be in the zone. you got to make sure the fly is moving away from the fish, you know, all that stuff. But, yeah, for sure, you could fish them just like any other. You probably want to use a heavier weight fly because you're fishing in deeper water. You want it to go down faster. And you probably can get away with, like, a seven-foot leader. And that would work great.
0: Yeah, yeah. Carl uh, looks like uh vitamin. Vitamin. In Montana, want to know about seaweed, avoiding seaweed. Do you have problems with seaweed in California? Sometimes, there?
1: yeah, that's a good question. Sometimes the wind kicks up in California at night, and it will blow some of the kelp, and maybe, kelp, you know, yeah. we'll get some seaweed on on the beach. And when that happens, it kind of it, it sucks. You got you, you really nothing you can do. You could either try to find a beach that has less of it and fish that area, or just wait till it cleans up. When it's really seaweedy, I usually don't. Don't try to sidecast because you, you, it's just you're fighting it. You know what I mean? Well, I'll try to either walk the beach and find an area that's clean, or I'll just wait till it it cleans out. You know, and, and then fish it. But I've seen I've been on the beach with friends where we we've we've been in areas where we know traditionally there's a lot of kelp on the beach, and where there's kelp patches floating around, we've seen corbina stay under those kelp patches, like in the shade, like for protection. Uh-huh. So yeah, when, a that, and we, yeah. when that happens, you got to just try to get the fly as close to the kelp as you can without hooking the kelp, uh, and yeah. hope that they they'll they'll eat it. But that's that's yeah. a whole other you yeah. know that doesn't happen very often. But yeah,
0: another question here, and this kind of goes back to the crowded beach situation uh, Don beach De- uh, in Palace, Pacific Palisades. And John's been on our show too, actually. He was a stunt double on. Uh, uh, a river runs through it, and a fly fishing consultant on that film so uh but uh, but anyway, he was asking about how close do you fish to one another when fishing with towels for carabiner or on the beach? He says it seems to be a lot closer than when fishing for trout. Do you consider that to be a hard and fast rule on this, or does it depend on the size and the structure of the school? How do you guys work that out uh, on the okay I,
1: I know John Beach. Very well. He's an old friend. And I see him down now there. He's down, in your down, book, down too. Yard.
0: He's in your book There's doing a picture of John meditating. Yeah. Meditating <laughs> yeah.
1: in the back of my book.
0: Yeah, meditating. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. You know? He's a funny guy, and he's a good fisherman. Um, the reason he wrote this question is because I was fishing down this one area one day, and he showed up, and I had a whole bunch of fish in front of me, and I was crouched down on my knees trying to, get you know, place a good fly to the fish. And he came right up on me, threw a fly right over me, and hooked one. And I was like, are you kidding me? You know, and he just – he thought it was funny, but I said, John, man, you know, you got to give me a little space. And we kind of went back and forth. And I said, you know, you got to give people space, dude. You know, let's somebody calls you in. Like, I've been in a situation where I've had fish in front of me, and someone was fishing down the beach, and they were not, weren't really in the right spot. And I literally would say, hey, man, come over here, come over here. And I'd have them, you know, take my spot fish, at least they see them and they know what's going on and they get in the game. I, I've done that many times. But John, I think John did it because he got all excited that there were fish in front of me. He yeah, probably. Back yeah, there. Yeah, and yeah, he threw it yeah. in there. And I'm glad he hooked the fish. But I, I said, John, you can't do that. And, and I kind of like, for a few years, I, he kept asking me, when are we going to go Corbina fishing? I said, I'm not fishing with you, dude. <laughs> I said, no. So we kind of had that running thing going for a while. That's why he asked that question.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. Though I mean, trout streams too. You know, kind of the rule of thumb in the Rockies is kind of like, well, if you can tell what color the other guy's line is, you could, you should probably move down a
1: little bit. You know,
0: so um, you know. Yeah, the
1: the beaches are big, and and the fish are moving up and down the beaches. You don't have to own real estate, so I I tend to try to give people as much room as I can. And if there are people, if I go to a certain area and I see two or three people, I just let it be. I just walk. I'll go somewhere else. I'll find my own Yeah, fish.
0: yeah, yeah. We need to wind it up. I've been so into this talking to you, I wasn't even watching the clock. <laughs> so, but let me just get you with one more question, and uh, then we'll finish it up. You got sure. me going on this now, Al. You got me going.
1: <laughs> it's a crazy uh, game, man. It's yeah, yeah.
0: Game. What's the uh, what's the future of, of fly fishing for Corbina? Do you, do you see it as a, a growing Interest for fly fishers? Are there enough fish? How do you see the future?
1: That's a great question. When I first started doing it, there were a lot more fish. I saw a lot, lot more fish. I mean, I saw hundreds and hundreds of fish in the morning. I don't see the quantity that, I, that I've seen in the past years. And that's okay, though. There's still a lot of fish on the beach. The main problem I have is a lot of the young younger fishermen that are coming into the game and are discovering corbina, and think that they discovered corbina. They take pictures with backgrounds. They let everybody know where they fish, where they're fishing. And for the fly fishermen, I don't really care because I think the fly fishermen are good stewards of the environment. And we catch and release and we, you know, we're, we're pretty good. But when they put pictures on Instagram with backgrounds and, and they let everybody know, look at me, I'm over here, I'm over there. We got the bucket brigade out here. You know, we have people fishing bait and they look at those, those pictures and they're like, oh, okay. They're fishing in Santa Monica. I'm going to go to and and then before you know it, you got 15 people fishing in a beautiful stretch that was a great spot, and now it's destroyed because yeah. people going in and just clean it out, and that's the problem that bothers me more than anything is that the, people don't think outside the box and realize that I know it's it's great to take that photograph, but just be more aware of your background. Make sure the person's standing with the ocean behind them so it looks like just the ocean. You know, just just so that it protects some of the areas so that when you go back, you can still have that fishery and you can enjoy it with your friends. That's the part that gets me more than anything, that people don't think about the future. And that is the future, is being responsible in that way. Even though they don't think it's a big deal, the more people that are looking – and they're they're taking the easy route. They're looking on Instagram and they're going, okay, I'm going to fish there on Saturday. You know, instead of going – let them find their own fish let them learn let them that's how, to me the journey is more than the destination you know learning more mm-hmm. about how to catch them and trying to figure out new places to go to catch them really turns me on yeah, um, yeah. and i'll take friends with me fishing but i don't want to advertise to everybody that this is the place to go because then it it gets ruined so that's, yeah. that's the only problem i have
0: yeah. yeah, and when, when people are killing fish, you know, it's just all over the world. It's it's become a problem. And, uh yeah, there's just not as many fish anywhere as there once was. And, and we do have to be good stewards and take care of the, the, the
1: fisheries. So I, I, I you've
0: got a great if point you made there. That's one small thing
1: that people could start yeah. doing. Yeah, that's one right. small point. I mean, it's not a big right. deal, but if people are just a little bit more aware of protecting the fishery in that way, yeah. I think it would yeah. make it better for everybody later on.
0: Yeah, no sounds good. Sounds good. Well, we've got to wrap this up, Al. Um, stick with me for a few more minutes while we do our giveaways, because we're going to be giving away a copy of your book, The Corbina Diaries. And, hey, I think it is the only guide to, to Corbina out there, and a very good one, right? Um,
1: I, I think, think so, I've ever
0: seen, yeah. I don't think anybody else has written about Corbina, and certainly not like you. so no. Uh, so we'll be giving away a copy of that in just a few minutes, as well as a membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. So uh, stick with us a few more minutes, and we'll get those prizes out to you folks. Do you travel to fish? Medical and security emergencies happen. When they do, you can rely on Global Rescue, the world's leading membership organization, providing integrated medical security, travel risk, and crisis response services to travelers worldwide. Without a Global Rescue membership, an emergency evacuation could cost you more than $100,000. That's why over 1 million members trust Global Rescue to get them home when the worst happens. Don't travel without Global Rescue. Memberships start at just $129. Learn more about Global Rescue's program. Just click on the Global Rescue icon in the footer of askaboutflyfishing.com. Just go down the foot of our website. You'll see a link there, or on the right side of our homepage, I think we've got a Uh, a logo there as well. Check them out and and protect yourself when you do travel. Just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave our website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show where it says, what do you think of this show? Just click on that and leave us your comments. We'd really appreciate it. Now it's time to give away our prizes, and uh, the winners for our drawings are randomly selected from this show's registration database. If you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for our next show so you don't miss out on a chance to win some of these great prizes we have to offer. Now, if you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show and provide you with information on how to receive your prize. So first, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org.org and check them out. Great organization to support and be part of. So we My database going here and, uh, press the magic button. It looks like Scott, uh, Yamamoto in California. Scott Yamamoto who asked about the strategy for steeper, steeper beaches. So great, Scott. You have a membership to Fly Fishers International. So, uh, we'll connect with you after the show and get you, get you set up with that. And, uh, second thing we're giving away is one year membership to Trout Unlimited. To learn more about Trout Unlimited, go to tu.org, tu.org. Another great organization to support that helps with conservation, uh, on fresh water. So check them out, tu.org, uh, Travel Unlimited. Our, our winner for that is Jeff Collins in Arizona. Jeff Collins in Arizona. So congratulations to both Scott and Jeff on that. And now we'll give away Al's book, The Corbina Diaries. And if you don't win tonight, you can use that link on our homepage there on the right side. It'll take you right to, uh, Al's site where you can get the book from him and, uh, uh and buy it there. So um, let's see if we can get a winner here and clear my Oh, well, that's a nice uh comment here already for you, Al. It says uh speaker had great knowledge of topic and in a good presentation would like him to speak on other topics. So we might have to discuss that, Al. <laughs> we <laughs> we do another do show. That. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another comment, thanks for the great show our, uh, online here. Okay, here we go. I got my pew cleared here. And let's just uh, go with name two flies that um, Al talked about as being good flies for Cordina. Got to name two, all right? And uh, we'll see if how that question works out for us here. Uh, and it's going to take a, a slight delay here, Al, before they actually hear me. And of course, they got to type it in. So um, I'll just keep refreshing the queue here and see what we get. Uh, and uh, so, do you have any uh, winter trips planned here, Al, for the for fishing? Al, are you still with me? Oh, I might have lost Al. Okay. Hey, Roger, I'm back. Oh, you're back. Okay, okay. Uh, Yeah, I've got some answers coming in. I've got Holy Moly and Red Worm.
1: What was the question? I missed it because I was uh,
0: Uh, up. Yeah, sorry. I I asked them for two flies that uh, you had talked about tonight on the show as being good flies for. Okay, um, sure. So Holy Moly and Red Worm, is that a winner? That works. That works? Okay. We also got some others in here. We got – that is Bob Younger in Indianapolis. Bob Younger in Indianapolis. And um, we also got in, yeah, Holy Moly, Phil McCartney, Surfin' Merkin, Surfin' Clouser, Olive Over White. Uh, So we've got a lot of people. Pink Merkin, Clouser. So we've got lots of answers. So anyway, we got Bob Younger. Those those are are all good
1: answers. I mean, who came in first?
0: Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, with Bob Younger came in first. So so he okay, is we'll the also, winner. I'll
1: sign the book to Bob. So
0: Right, yeah. So Bob, send me uh you can use the same form, send me your mailing address. I've got your email address and your name here and then I will forward that on to um to Al and he'll get get you out yep. a signed copy. So um thanks uh, thanks for paying attention. Uh Bob, you're out in it looks like Indianapolis. So um You've got a ways to go, but uh, you need to get out there and fish for some Corbina. Now, now you've got a reason. So uh, congratulations, and thanks for paying attention and playing the game with us. So, Al, thank you so much for being on the show tonight and spending your time with us. It was great. I think we really uh, – you, you gave the folks a real understanding of Corbina tonight, and I'm sure you've got some new converts <laughs> out
1: here. So. Hey, so, thanks thank you, so much Roger. for being It was with a pleasure. Us. Yeah. It was thanks. a pleasure being on the show. Thank you.
0: Great. Hopefully, you've all found the podcast archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link on the top-line menu in that archive. You can find all our past shows, over 360 shows now. Just search by keyword, keyword phrase, trout, tarpon, very soon, Corbina, and you'll be able to find the shows out there. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised by all the information that we've collected over the years. Uh, Our next broadcast will be December 7th, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern. On that show, I'm going to interview Paul Weimer And our topic for the show will be essential flies for Yellowstone. Paul is a professional fly tire and licensed fishing guide in Yellowstone National Park. He considers Yellowstone as as his home waters and has spent many years fishing them. Join us to explore the essential flies you need and how to effectively fish them in Yellowstone streams, rivers, and lakes. Uh, And just um, if you want to add that upcoming show to your calendar, just look on our homepage. Right under Paul's picture is a, a calendar link. Just use that and can add it to your calendar. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Trout Unlimited, Town Global Rescue, Guilds Fly Fishing International, and Enrico Puglisi Flies for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future podcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing United Radio.
1: We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.